This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 38, Numbers chapter 28 through 31. And with chapters 28 and 29, we're back to the very specific recipes for near offerings, the regular diet and the special meals for Shabbat, the new moon, Pesach, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, as well as the spontaneous vow offerings and free will offerings. Chapter 30 takes up the matter of the vow or neder and the required mechanics, as in, if a man makes a neder, it sticks no matter what. But if a woman makes a neder and her father hears her but says nothing, it's binding. But if her father says something in the moment to constrain her, the neder is not binding and God forgives her because her father gets the last word. But... If a woman makes a neder and then gets married, and her husband hears about the neder but says nothing, the neder stands. But if he has an issue with the neder, then the neder is annulled. However, widows and divorcees, because they have no men to constrain them, are held to their word. (laughs) In chapter 31, we finally get the war we've been waiting for since the last episode. It's go time. Jews versus Midian. Pinchas, priest of the armed forces, is arrayed with holy implements and trumpets blasting while the Jews attack and utterly decimate the Midianites, killing every male, including the king of Midian and his court, as well as Bilam, the donkey-beating prophet who blessed Israel in the previous episode. Now that's gratitude. When the officers bring all the booty and spoils back to Moshe, Moshe is incensed because the Jewish soldiers left all the females alive. So Moshe tells the Jews to go and kill all the male children and all the non-virgin females because they were responsible for luring and seducing all the Jewish men in the previous episode, and they should leave all the girls for distribution as sexual spoils of war. Wow, wow, is very nice. What follows are instructions for decontamination for the men and their spoils, as well as the matter of distributing the spoils between the soldiers and the civilians, then between the soldiers and the Kohanim, with the latter getting two-tenths of a percent, and then between the civilians and the Levites to the tune of two percent. The chapter concludes with Moshe and Elazar processing the deposit of gold for the tent of appointment, quote, as a reminder for the children of Israel before the presence of Adonai. So, there's a lot to talk about this week. Let's get to it. feminist moment last week. If you were wondering whether the Torah was getting all sisterhood is powerful, I'll remind you that the munificence extended to the daughters of Tzlovchad ended with them. If a man dies with no children, brothers, uncles, and various other male relatives can inherit, sisters, aunts, and other women need not apply. In this week's portion, we learn a bit more about the status of women, or to be more specific, the status of foreign women in the ancient Jewish world. A very telling moment indeed when Moshe yells at the victorious Jews for not killing all the women and children. Say what? In previous episodes of Tanakhcast, we pondered whether it was important that we like the protagonists of Genesis and Exodus. We also discussed some perplexing laws, incidents, and attitudes in previous episodes as well. And as they say, you know, men don't have feelings, they make laws. For example, we talked about the commandment to remember and erase Amalek, all that talk of abominations, and recently the Joffrey-style impaling of whoring Jews' heads on pikes. 
and many other declarations on various classes of people that would not really go over in polite society today. But one could easily compartmentalize those commandments and conversations as hypotheticals, as in, well, I haven't usurped the land of Israel from its indigenous inhabitants yet, but when I do, boy, oh boy. Or, the impalings could be considered a private family matter, that is, some Jews misbehaved and had to be handled. But here we have an instance not set in the future, but described in the present within the flow of the narrative. And it is not an internal family thing, but shall we say an international affair. We're talking about war, victory, that's ours, and defeat, <clears throat> them. And the consequences of that defeat, the despoilment of Midian, the capture and killing of the male children and the women. Since leaving Egypt, the Jews, by my account, have fought four battles. The first against Amalek, and the second against the Canaanites in Arad, which were in self-defense, that is, the Jews were attacked and then they fought back. The third and fourth engagements against Sichon the Amorite and Og the Bashanite, respectively, they were, they were wars of second resort. That is, the Jews offered peace and cash and were met with aggression. Both victories commanded more than one verse in Numbers chapter 21, with the second spelling out what is nodded at in the first, quote, So they struck him, that's Og, and his sons and all his people until not a survivor was left to him, and they took possession of his land. And in the victory over Sihon, there's also talk of dispossessing the Amorites of their cities and settling it with Jews. The image of the second victory, however, is one of utter rout, with the Jews obliterating the opposing forces down to the last man. But one could also read the word his people, Amo, as his nation, in which case the victory over Bashan also involved genocide. To be clear, the Jews annihilated the Bashanites, cleansing the land of the native population as they did to the Amorites east of the Jordan River, which, if you wanted to compartmentalize again, could be somehow justified as the Jews did not pick these fights, they just ended them. Resolutely. But the war with Midian was a fight that Moshe was itching for, a direct result of the incident of whoring with Moabite women, as God tells Moshe at the end of chapter 25, quote, Attack the Midianites and strike them, for they attacked you with their craftiness, with which they were crafty with you in the matter of Peor, in the matter of Cosby daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister, the one struck, dead at the time of the plague in the matter of Peor. Causes Belai? You bet. And so, the troops are mustered six chapters later and the victory is swift and all the Midianites, males and females, are put to the sword. The girls are spared to become spoils of war. The one mitigating facet of this story is Moshe's instruction that the genociders remain isolated outside the camp for a week to be purified. Were their actions too outrageous and contaminating for immediate reintegration into polite Jewish society? Mm, I don't know. But did you notice how I ratcheted up the language around this story? It's hard to talk about what happened with Midian without flirting with Godwin's Law. And we've talked about Godwin's Law before, about how internet conversations degenerate into, well, you can look that up. So to prevent unnecessary trollery and the end of civilized conversations, I have installed a Godwinometer to forestall such unpleasantries. So before you get all, those were different times, and it's not fair to judge them by our standards, I reply thus. Why shouldn't we judge? In fact, we're worse than them. 
The ancients in the Near East could have set out to eradicate each other, but it would have taken them probably a lot of time. Probably decades, but even then their grim task would have remained incomplete as humans would have survived in the Americas and Australia. We late capitalist postmoderns have very different capabilities, which brings to mind a casual utterance in a totally different context by a well-known physicist that became the basis for what folks in space research and sci-fi geeks called Fermi's paradox. Enrico Fermi was that well-known physicist. He worked on Chicago Pile 1, the first nuclear reactor, and contributed to the science that made the atomic bomb possible. In 1950, while working at Los Alamos National Laboratory, Fermi was hanging out, having a light lunch with colleagues Emil Konopinski, Edward Teller, and Herbert York. They were discussing a recent run of UFO reports, and soon the talk got all Star Trek-y as Fermi wondered about faster-than-light travel, and eventually he asked, where are they? Meaning the aliens. If there are so many stars and so many planets, some of them should have been home to intelligent life, and some of them, say the Klingons or Romulans, should have invented interstellar travel by now and colonized us. But they haven't. Why not? For this, we also need to consider the Kardashev scale. First proposed in 1964 by the Soviet astronomer Nikolai Kardashev, this scale measures a civilization's technological advancement based on the amount of energy a civilization is able to generate and use. The scale has three designated categories, type 1, type 2, and type 3. A type 1 civilization uses all available resources to the detriment of its home planet. Type 2 harnesses all the energy of its star, and type 3 harnesses the energy of its galaxy. We're type 1. So here's how some folks understand Fermi in combination with Kardashev. Yes, thousands if not tens of thousands if not millions of civilizations may have sprouted across the universe, all type 1s. But where are they? In a word, gone. Almost all have never made it to type 2 because they destroyed themselves. And like I said, this is where we are. We have the capability as a civilization to utterly annihilate every man, woman, and child on the planet within weeks maybe even days. So I'm not so sure that we can't call out our ancestors who advocated ethnic cleansing, mass rape, and genocide when we can do far worse. I guess it's a case of pot calling the kettle Hitler. Oh, oh, damn it! You have violated Godwin's law. Prepare to be... I'm glad there's an off switch on that. Anyway, so let's get back to Moshe and Midian. What he was calling for in modern terms was a form of sexual violence in war, which has traditionally been understood as the result of individual soldiers acting on their pent-up sexual urges or an expression of their suspension of normal morality during the chaos of conflict. But here, there are no horny soldiers or need for a pressure valve release. The war seems to be over. The Jews have won. The soldiers bring back the spoils to divvy up. It's Moshe who advocates sexual violence as a further instrument of war, which, like violence as a common political tool, is not the goal, but a way of achieving a goal. Winning big, or in this case, winning bigger. Sexual violence is not a matter of individual assault, but an abuse of human rights. It's also, according to the UN Security Council Resolution 1820, which was passed in 2008, also a war crime. A crime against humanity, or an act of genocide as defined by the Rome Statute, of the International Criminal Code. There, I said it. Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe our teacher, has topped all the patriarchs and the fratricidal sons of Israel in bad behavior. Moshe is guilty of a war crime. 
And here's the thing, there is a biblical conception of this thing we call war crimes. And we're not talking about this notion of a war crime applying solely to the losers of the war, because when you win, winning is just a matter of omelet making, as in, you can't make one without breaking some eggs, because when you wage war, you wage it to win, right? A moral victory is for suckers and losers, so you do what you have to do, right? But here's the thing, even when the stakes were high, when victory ensured survival and defeat meant the end of your people, your future, your God, and even then there were notions of decorum during wartime. There were limits, even then. And the Torah lays them out, primarily in the next book, during Moshe's farewell address in Deuteronomy, where he prescribes a code of conduct for soldiers, about maintaining ritual purity on the eve of battle, suing first for peace, preserving natural resources. But at the same time, there are rules about enjoying the spoils of war and how to handle the defeated males, as in putting them to the sword. The same could be said for other codes of conduct, the chivalric codes from the Middle Ages, which regulated wars. They were tempered by the peace of God, or Pax Dei, that granted immunity from violence to non-combatants who could not defend themselves, beginning with the peasants and the clergy. Children and women, both virgins and widows, were added to the list for protection. Pax Dei also prohibited nobles from invading churches, beating the defenseless, burning houses. In the 11th century, merchants and their goods were added to the protected groups as well, the truce of God, or Truga Dei, extended the peace by setting aside certain days of the year when violence was not allowed, such as Sundays and Holy Days, and later all of Lent, and even the Friday of every week. Even during the most savage of modern wars, the Great War, World War I, where chemical weapons were used with impunity and men were mowed down in the tens of thousands by machine guns, there were instances where the dogs of war were kenneled even for an evening specifically Christmas Eve 1914, where widespread unofficial ceasefires took place along the Western Front. A soldier in the Essex Regiment wrote a letter published on the January 1st, 1915 edition of the Norfolk Chronicle and Norwich Gazette. He wrote as follows. The 1st of January, 1915. Amusing trench incident. Tommy and Fritz Exchange presents. One of the oddities of the war in the western battlefields at all events, says the Daily Chronicle, is the close proximity of the opposing forces in the trenches, thus giving opportunities for conversation. But the record must surely be made by an incident described in a letter from Private H. Scruton, Essex Regiment, to relatives at Wood Green, Norwich. He writes, as I told you before our trenches are only 30 or 40 yards away from the Germans. This led to an exciting incident the other day. Our fellows have been in the habit of shouting across to the enemy and we used to get answers from them. We were told to get into conversation with them and this is what happened. From our trenches. Good morning Fritz. No answer. Good morning Fritz. Still no answer. Good morning Fritz. From German trenches. Good morning. From our trench. How are you alright? Come over here. Fritz. Number. If I come I get shot. No you won't. Come on. No fear. Come and get some fags. Fritz. Number. You come halfway and I meet you. Alright. One of our fellows thereupon stuffed his pocket with fags and got over the trench. The German got over his trench, and right enough they met halfway and shook hands. Fitz taking the fags and giving cheese in exchange. It was good to see the Germans standing on top of their trenches and the English also. 
with caps waving in the air, all cheering. About 18 of our men went halfway and met about the same number of Germans. This lasted about half an hour when each side returned to their trenches to shoot at each other again. What I have written is the truth but don't think we got chums as two of our fellows were killed the same night. And I don't know how many of them. But with the total war doctrine of World War II all bets were off, even though there were other instances in history of war where it was fought by everyone against everyone, never was it practiced on such a grand scale. In 1949, U.S. Air Force General Curtis LeMay proposed that total war in the nuclear age would consist of delivering your nation's entire nuclear arsenal in a single overwhelming blow against the enemy, going as far as killing a whole nation. Hmm. So, Moshe. Had there been a Hague to bring Moshe to, he would surely have deserved to be brought there to face charges in the International Criminal Court. Because there were no mitigating circumstances, no superior orders commanding the mass rape, no sense of impending danger or threat from Midian at this stage of the conflict. There was nothing to justify Moshe's order. Nothing. And for this, he should be held accountable. Except at that stage of human civilization, there was no one to do that holding. So perhaps this is where we differ. Because today, we do. Like the looming threat of annihilation hanging over all of us, our leaders have another looming threat, that eventuality whereby if they take a certain course of action, or give a particular order, and things do not go as planned, they might find themselves summoned or hauled into court and asked to account for their decisions. Like WikiLeaks who pull away the veil of secrecy from the shenanigans of our leaders, the International Criminal Court also pulls away the veil of impunity. And in my mind, that's not such a terrible thing. As always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T. Or at thenextju.com, or you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes store, or Stitcher Smart Radio, or at SoundCloud. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join the fun. You're invited to come on back and join us next week-ish for episode 40 including the Book of Numbers, chapters 32 through 36. Y'all come back now, here. Yeah.